Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. This week, we'd like to welcome Barney Britton, who is Senior Editor of DP Review. Barney, thank you very much for joining us. Of course, thank you. Barney is in Seattle in the U.S., and yet he has a British accent, and his name is Britton. Um, it's funny, you're over there, and I'm over here, and we're in different countries, and Jeff is still where he was born and raised. Almost. I was born and raised in Idaho, which is not too far away from Seattle. That. So, yes, I did not know that. Twin Falls, where uh, Evil Knievel attempted to jump the Snake River Canyon. We're famous for lots of minor things. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a pretty weird claim to fame. Famous for misadventure. Uh, Exactly. So this week, we want to talk about the camera business, the camera industry. And the timing of this isn't ideal. Um, I started thinking about this uh, back in September when Om Malik published an article on his website, Camera Sales Are Falling Sharply. And link in the show notes, you'll see a graph of camera sales from 2003 through the first six months of 2019, and as they went up and up and up as digital cameras came into their own, and then as they just fell off a cliff. And I was interested in examining what this is going to mean for the future of photography. And then we have this catastrophe that's hit us now, which means basically people aren't taking many pictures anymore. Maybe we can ignore the whole coronavirus thing when we're talking about this and just try and imagine what this would be like in a normal world. Uh, we're looking at numbers of 120 million cameras were sold in 2008. In 2018, it's about 20 million cameras. What's really interesting in this graph, if you look at it, is you'll see that early on, um, it's the sale of cameras with built-in lenses that were selling really well. And while cameras with interchangeable lenses um, had sales increases, and they haven't fallen as much, uh, it's gotten to the point where built-in lens cameras are selling less than cameras with interchangeable lenses. So a built-in lens is a pocket camera that you take when you're going on vacation or you use on the weekend, and an interchangeable lens is a DSLR or micro four-thirds or whatever. Now, obviously, what happened is the iPhone and other smartphones meant that people don't really need cameras with built-in lenses, but we're even seeing a drop from, let's say, 2012, where 20 million, um, let's just call them DSLRs, were sold, and in 2018, it was down to 11. So, Barney, you look at the big picture at DP Review, you look at the, the new gear that comes in, but you're also looking at roadmaps and, and what's selling and what's not. Is this going to keep dropping? Have we reached bottom? Is there a bottom to reach? Well, I actually don't have access to um, sales numbers beyond beyond the SEPA figures. I can't tell you in real time what's selling and what's not. But yeah, I think you just gave a pretty good summary of it. The the the, the biggest single reason for the drop in, in camera shipments over the period that you're looking at is the drop in sales of compact cameras. People are still buying compact cameras, but they're the compact cameras attached to their to their smartphones. So, you know, around the time of 2000, 2007, 2008, 2009, um, a smartphone started becoming, you know, a, a mainstream sort of photographic accessory almost. And the camera has become the, the, the main, one of the main differentiators now in smartphones. Obviously, there's less and less reason to buy a compact camera. Now, that doesn't necessarily spell disaster for the camera industry because, you know, that the... the, the, the 
people are still taking photographs. In fact, more photographs are being taken now than ever before. And a large number of people who bought a compact camera were probably never going to buy, you know, a, a DSLR or a mirrorless interchangeable lens camera anyway. And of course, what it does do, it does suck a lot of the value out of the, the industry. You know, I think something like a 70% fall in value in the last 10 years. And that is primarily the loss of the compact camera market. And that value means that a company's R&D budget is shrinking because their overall income is shrinking. Well, sort of, but that's a little simplistic. So most camera manufacturers don't only make cameras, right? So if you look at Canon, you know, and Olympus, actually, companies like that, even even to a less extent, but even to even, even looking at Nikon. Well, none of them only make cameras, do they? So they have enormous amounts of, of um, you know, they, they have in other industries. So Fujifilm, you know, for example, cosmetics, huge business for Fujifilm, which is not to say that if the camera division of Fujifilm stopped making any money, that it would be bailed out again and again and again. But a company like Fujifilm, a company like Canon, they can afford to lose some value in the camera division if they're making it up elsewhere in the company. Now, that, not every manufacturer has that luxury. But there's another factor coming into play here over the last 10 years as well, especially the last sort of 10, 15 years, which is that about 15 years ago, let's say, let's pick a, you know, pick a date, 2005, every year, typically, you'd see a fairly big increase in the state of the art for camera technology at any given price point. So you'd be quite motivated if you bought, for example, an original Canon EOS 5D. You'd be quite motivated to buy the 5D Mark II when it came out, because the jump in image quality and functionality and speed and everything else would be quite enormous. Jump from the 5D Mark II to the 5D Mark III, a little bit less, but still fairly significant. Jump from the three to the four, less again. Unless you're interested in certain of its you know, differentiating features like 4K video. Now that plays out across the entire camera industry. So that means people don't need to replace their cameras as often as they used to. And that's another reason for the drop in sales. Well, that's pretty much the computer and the smartphone industry as well. Um, I look back at the original iPod. It came out, it played music. And then uh, a little bit later, it could store photographs. And then a little bit later, it could store video. You had podcasts that came in. Um, once you got to that, there was nothing else to put on it. When the iPhone came out, as you say, you get these jumps in quality, uh, be it the processor, be it the storage, um, the camera quality. But every year now, the incremental changes are minimal. The difference with a smartphone is it's a wear part. People drop them, people break them. So they are only going to last a couple of years, a few years for most people. Um, cameras are different. They, unless you're a professional, they don't get used that much. So what would be the interest in replacing a five-year-old camera now if you're only using it occasionally? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think every consumer would have to answer that question. I think I could give I could give photographers very good reasons for upgrading their cameras, but if you're not in the habit of taking enough pictures with it, you know, to, to justify the cost, then you're not going to do it. Apple's genius, actually, talking about the iPod, was Apple was the company that made the iPod obsolete with the iPhone. And that's the trick. You know, no one buys iPods anymore, not because they're not good at what they're designed to do, but because they have another device that does the same thing and so much more, also made by Apple. And that's the trick that camera manufacturers to date haven't pulled off. You know, take Canon as an example. Canon, 
has been sort of trialing these uh, concept cameras now for a few years at trade shows and in the headquarters in Japan. And I've been seeing them for three or four years, and they're these sort of interesting little little things, little wearables, um, smart cameras, uh, super telephoto cameras in your you know pocketable form factor. All things which are meant to appeal to people upgrading from a smartphone. And they've put they put one in the market last year, didn't do so well, but you know, that's what every manufacturer should be trying to do right now. And it kinda of hasn't succeeded yet, but you know, they're at least paying attention to it. But I'm not seeing other manufacturers do that. You know, if if because if people are stopping buying traditional cameras, they're not they're gonna buy something else. And right now they're buying smartphones. Well, it also seems to me that there's been a, a big push traditionally on specs, you know. I mean, megapixels were the big thing. And so when you had a camera that was updated with, you know, dramatically more megapixels, like it was a very easy decision to make. Like, oh, well, okay, well, this image quality is going to be better because I have more resolution. But now we're at a point where, uh, you know, if, if I have a 24 megapixel camera, it does a really good job on just about everything. Do I really need to go up to a Sony that has dramatically more megapixels or, you know, like a, a Fuji GF100 that's just, you know, absolutely absurd? Obviously, that's geared toward people who have specific uses and more high-end, you know, say, super fashion photography where they might use that. But for everybody else, it's just like like the the technical considerations are no longer as interesting and i think people wonder all right well what else is there that would drive me you know when it, when i upgraded to my uh fuji xt3 from an xt1 the megapixels were part of it but also the autofocus and the fact that it could identify faces well and like all of those kind of things and it's been nice to see camera man- manufacturers get into some of that and expand beyond, okay, well, you know, we have these technical things, but what else can they do? See, that's where the smartphone is winning today. And the camera manufacturers seem to be lagging the whole computational photography thing that Apple and the Samsung and other companies can do doesn't seem to be spilling over into normal cameras. Well, it is and it isn't. Um, it is, but it isn't happening as quickly as consumers might expect if they're only used to looking at the smartphone market. One thing I would say about resolution, actually, quickly before we jump on to, to AI, you know, ironically, it used to be that 15 years ago we would talk about how big, how many megapixels do I need to make a medium-sized print, mm-hmm. right? So 6 to 12 is, is was the accepted answer to that, I think, back then. Whereas now, most consumers aren't really making prints or thinking in those terms anymore. They're thinking, well, I just need Instagram or Facebook. So ironically, they don't need 24 megapixels. They don't even need 12. They don't need 6. They don't need 3. They need about 2 megapixels. So anything above that is satisfying the needs of a large number of consumer photographers right now, which is, you know... So that's one of the reasons why the megapixel (laughs) (laughs) question has sort of fallen a little bit off the map is a large number of the people taking photographs these days don't actually need as much resolution as they probably think they do. But to go back to AI, the, the reason that the companies like Apple, Samsung, Huawei, and, and all the rest are able to put, um, you know, incredible computational photography, machine learning devices in your pocket is because the business model is so different. For one thing, your phone is a thousand dollar piece of equipment. You don't think about that because you pay it off at thirty dollars a month for two years or whatever. You know, 
for a manufacturer, for a camera manufacturer to put that kind of technology in the camera, even assuming they have it and they have the decades of research required to create it, that would enormously increase the cost of the, the device they're trying to sell, which would essentially make it unsellable. Now, Sony's actually getting getting uh, getting close. Sony has decades of research in in AI and uh, and machine learning. And uh, you know, if you look at a lot of the, the Sony t- camera technologies now, from eye detection for humans to pet eye detection, you know, all of that is based on um, on some I mean, you know really incredible technologies they've been spending a long time developing. And it's it's it is you know coming in in cameras from other manufacturers as well. You know. Nikon just updated its C6, C7 with animal eye detection. It works works pretty well. Um, Fuji's getting pretty good at, at face and eye detection these days, although it tends to see faces where faces don't exist. You know, these technologies are emerging. But I think the problem is that they're always added as a layer. Like, oh, now with face and eye detection. Whereas, you know, someone who's used to using a modern smartphone just has that without even thinking about it. Well, we don't have face detection in the iPhone, do we? You do. Yeah. Is there really good face detection? I don't take a lot of pictures of people, so... <laughs> it actually is. Honestly, yeah. it's so good that you don't necessarily even notice you have it. Put a little frame around the face and everything. But what it's also doing mm-hmm. is it's recognizing that as a face and making metering white balance and uh, dynamic range decisions based on that analysis. When you think about... See, the thing is, we were saying earlier that none of these companies are just camera companies. Most of them do other imaging products, whether it's... Um, binoculars or telescopes or medical imaging. So they do have a lot of research into the image capture elements, the lenses, the sensors and all that. But maybe they don't have enough research into the computational photography side because for them, historically, they were just about the image capture. Now, Jeff and I both use Fuji and they've got these great film simulations, but a film simulation is relatively simple. It's really just what? A lookup table um, to adjust colors and contrast and uh, shadows and highlights. It's not computational in any way. It's pretty much a blunt edge tool. So it's almost as if they're they're selling this as a feature, um, many camera companies, particularly Fuji, yet the feature itself seems to be frozen in time in many ways. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not that's not computational photography. It's a it's a JPEG color preset of the kind that have existed for for a very very long time. Um, I mean, essentially, Fujifilm's uh, marketing around around um, film modes harkens back to their heritage as a film manufacturer. It gives them the sort of trust of you know the authority of a brand that you recognize from from you know the last generation of photography. It's it's an Instagram uh, color preset, effectively, just called something else, right? Yeah. Well, to match their their color films, and, and imagine if Kodak still made digital cameras and they had, you know, Kodachrome and Ektachrome presets and Tri-X presets, um, that would certainly grab a certain number of people who did start with film, and others would sort of catch on over time. What, what's interesting, though, is Fujifilm is making money um, in a way that other camera manufacturers aren't through their Instax cameras. So these are instant, I guess, the, the, the successor of the Polaroid. And just in passing, it turns out that a subsidiary of Fujifilm has a drug that may work against the COVID-19 virus. 
um, that's undergoing uh, serious testing and could make them a fortune because of that. So nothing to do with cameras. As you said earlier, they're in cosmetics. They're in all sorts of uh, different imaging uh, products as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that that provides the company as a whole with a with a kind of a buffer against ups and downs in any one of its divisions, which is not to say that if the camera division stopped making any money and started making massive loss, it's not to say that they wouldn't cut it off. But, you know, it's it's a it's a degree of um, of sort of security, a degree of insurance, I suppose. You know, Olympus, I, I, I don't know the figures, but Olympus by, makes by far the majority of its revenue through medical. Uh, camera is a small part of Olympus's overall business, but it's an important one for them because of the heritage. OK, we're going to take a brief break because we like to take breaks in our episodes so we can play our theme music for a few seconds. And we'll be right back. <laughs> Okay, so let's go a little bit further because, again, if we go back to this uh, chart that I was looking at, um, the sales for interchangeable lens cameras, they went up, they've gone down. It's impossible to find a number of how many professional photographers there are. The professional photographers are going to keep buying interchangeable lens cameras for the most part. They're going to keep breaking them. They're going to keep replacing them. They're going to want better, faster ones with more megapixels because if you're in the fashion industry, you probably want to be able to do more processing to your photos. And so maybe 100 megapixels is a little bit too much, um, but you want 50 megapixels or something like that. But if we were to take out all the camera enthusiasts, people like Jeff and I who aren't professionals in this field, um, I remember saying a couple months ago to Jeff, you know, imagine if... All the enthusiast photographers managed to dampen down their gear acquisition syndrome for a year. And it looks like we're in a situation where a lot of people may have to turn off their gear acquisition syndrome. And I'm wondering how much this could hit camera companies. Um, yeah. I, I, do you mean this the, the, the situation that we're in specifically right now with COVID-19? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the... That's the that's the the really big fear, you know. I mean, to back up a little bit, go back two or three weeks, you know, when this was still considered primarily, um, you know, a problem in China. Uh, feels like a year ago, but uh, you know, the manufacturers I was speaking to then, their biggest concern was um, supply chain, was uh, component parts from China becoming um, unobtainable or the supply chain becoming muddied because of uh, you know a drop in industrial capacity in China. And they were concerned about Chinese consumer demand domestically falling because they were worried that the Chinese economy would take a hit. And, you know, the Chinese market now is is pretty big and is actually one of the few markets in the world that um, will still demonstrate reliable growth in the camera industry. That's what they were worried about. They were worried about Chinese factories and Chinese shoppers. Um, two, three weeks, you know, into the future to, to where we are right now. And, and that's no longer the concern. You know, the concern is that <laughs> The economy, the biggest economies in the world, in, in, in Europe and in the, in the US, who failed to see the risk of COVID-19 um, for what it was and until it was too late, that those economies are going to take an even bigger hit. And, and yeah, you know, you, we, how many people apply for unemployment in, in the US in the past 10 days? It's, you know, if you just lost your job and you've got no prospects of getting regular paid income until what's looking now like at least June or July... 
And you have no disposable income to spend on anything, let alone cameras. The broader question of gear acquisition syndrome, uh, do, do we have any idea what percentage of camera and lens sales that represents in, in an average year? Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. I, it... In other words, people buying things they don't need just because they want something that's a little bit better because there's new specs or whatever. Yeah, no, I, that's, I, I think that's a level of granularity that I would be, I'd be fascinated in, in learning. Um, but I don't know if that's, I don't know if CEPA figures are going to reveal that. Well, I think some of this too, going back to audience that we were talking to before the break, is the fact that the, I would say that the audience for photography has grown quite a lot, but it's people who are getting smartphones and picking up photography. And I haven't seen any uh, studies or numbers that suggests like, like how many people start with a smartphone, get into photography and say, wow, I really like this. So I'm going to then move up to a compact camera or a mirrorless or go full DSLR. Uh, my suspicion is it's not very high because most people are like, hey, my phone is doing a pretty great job. Maybe they're going to go on vacation or would go on vacation uh, and and want a telephoto Zoom or something like that where, th- you know, a, a smartphone is just going to be too wide to get what they want. But, you know, my suspicion is there just isn't a huge demand for for that uptick to other cameras, even among people who, you know, have caught the photographic bug. Yeah, it's hard to tell, isn't it? Really, you know, I know a lot of people who started on smartphones and, and moved into moved into you know quote unquote serious photography with a camera, but it's very hard to sort of get a sense of how big that constituency is. And one thing I would say is that enthusiast photographers have never been a major constituency in terms of overall camera sales. It's mm-hmm. sort of a it's sort of a myth. I mean, the the, the professional photography. Um, segment in a in a in a manufacturer's lineup is is a great shop window it's a great store window for the brand you know um for canon for nikon when they have lenses lined up at the side of the on the sidelines of the olympics that's fantastic for the visibility of the brand but the people who are buying and using those cameras and lenses that's not a big number of people compared to those people who are buying you know 90d level or rebel level products for example so what is this chart showing if it's not enthusiast photographers? I would assume built-in lenses are individuals and not pros. And if it's going up and then plummeting that much, even for DSLRs, is what's left the pros and the hardcore enthusiasts? Um, there are a couple of parts to that question. I mean, the, the, the big... So what you're looking at in this chart is you're seeing the camera industry roughly peak in 2008 right before the financial crisis, as you'd expect, drops in 2009, recovers somewhat because there was still residual R&D from before the crisis, and then drops steadily after that, and the steady drop after that is smartphones. Now, if you look at sales of cameras with interchangeable lenses, which is part of this chart, that actually keeps on growing until 2012 and drops off, but fairly slowly, and actually for the past, well, for 2016, 17, 18... Well, no, 2015, 16, 17, 18 has been relatively stable. So that's the story there. So that's that's the enthusiasts, the 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 gray the gray bar, the sales of cameras with interchangeable lenses. That's the enthusiasts and the pros. And that the reason that has stayed relatively stable is that that's the period of time in which mirrorless has become the norm. 
and early adopters are part of that, but also just the technologies that mirrorless cameras bring that DSLRs couldn't has kept that segment relatively um, uh, vibrant. So if we're looking at 2018, 11 million uh, interchangeable lens cameras, and let's say 2019, since it's not a complete year, let's say it's 10. That's 10 million around the world. That doesn't sound like a lot of cameras. Um, well, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's not compared to 109 million. No, what I mean is Apple sells 50 or 60 or 80 million iPhones in a quarter. Um, this is the entire world, 10 million in a year. Uh, obviously, uh, this kind of camera has a longer life than an iPhone, but still, it doesn't seem like a lot. Well, no, it isn't. It, you know, but let's look at the peak of the interchangeable lens market, according to this graph, which is 2012. That was 20. So we've gone from 20 million, which is bigger than 10, but also isn't doesn't come close to the figures that you just quoted for iPhone sales. Yeah. Of course it doesn't. You know, the iPhone is is an everything device, you know, whereas the camera is uh, does one thing. I mean, these days, of course, they do two things. They do video as well, which is another actually, you know, something we should we should probably talk about. Um, but yeah, the iPhone is your calendar. It's your reminders. It's your friend circle. It's your way of contacting. It's your emergency device. You know, of course, you. Yeah. it's a new point. I, I, I forgot to take my phone out last night on a bike ride and I regretted it. Because of what happens if I have an accident? So... Given what you know of of the big companies, I, I know you don't have any you know access to uh, future numbers and all that stuff. But do you see these companies uh, making any sort of uh, radical shifts in how they uh, make or plan or design their cameras? I mean, one thing about the the camera industry. It seems, especially when you look at companies like Canon, like they're they're big slow ships and. It's it's been hard to see any of them make any you know drastic moves in response to things like this. So, do you think maybe these numbers and uh, the coronavirus effect that's uh, going around the world? Do you think any of these companies are are going to do anything drastically different, or do they seem like they're going to just try to weather it? And um, again, maybe because these are small divisions in larger companies kind of stick with it? Um, very hard to tell, uh, quite honestly. I think the, the message that you that, that I hear from executives who I speak to um, pretty regularly, honestly, is, well, the camera industry is, is, is shrinking overall. However, there's some, there are some areas of growth. So therefore, we are focusing on those areas of growth, which makes complete sense. It's much yeah. easier to differentiate in a field in which you're an expert than to become a generalist when you are not. So for Fujifilm or for Canon to make a smartphone would probably be a bad decision because they couldn't compete, for example, right? Even Microsoft couldn't compete with smartphones. They yeah. know how to make cameras. So what they do is they make cameras and they watch the market really, really carefully and they feed the different territories around the world with the kind of cameras that the graphs suggest that they want. Now, I think that the the manufacturers have definitely been... They were, I don't want to say they were caught napping. I'm sure they saw it coming to some extent, but I don't think anyone anticipated the speed of smartphone um, take up around the world. And that really did absolutely decimate the compact camera industry, which I think for a long time manufacturers probably took for granted. Because if you look at the same graph that we were just talking about, from 2003 to 2008, the growth in the compact camera market is almost threefold. Because that was the era of great technological leaps generation upon generation. Now, Essentially, three things happened between 2008 and 2012. The first was the financial crash. 
which wiped out a lot of R&D money, took a lot of money out of consumers' pockets. The second thing was the, um, the, the, uh, the, the evolution of the modern smartphone. And the third thing was the earthquake and the tsunami in Japan in 2012. That's right, yeah. That triple punch was, you know, very, 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 very damaging. The, the tsunami and the earthquake, remarkably, they recovered from that actually incredibly quickly. But the financial crisis and the restructuring of economies all around the world, a reassessment of consumer spending around the world as a consequence, and the fact that now the smartphone you had was probably as good as you needed the camera you used to have to be, and increasingly was better and better and better every generation. The smartphone growth, technologically speaking, has mirrored the compact camera uh, growth in technology, right? You know, every generation of smartphone now is substantially better than the last one just like every generation of compact camera used to be. Um, I don't think that's going to last forever. But that's the, you know, if you could plot the growth in smartphone sales against this same graph, you'd see that the curves would almost be, you know, they'd almost be opposite curves. One thing we haven't touched on, we've been talking about digital camera unit sales here. So this is camera bodies. We haven't touched on lenses. Now, I know in, in my personal situation, I've spent more money on lenses for my Fuji X-T3 than I spent on the body. Um, this may not be the case for everyone. Many people will just survive with the kit lens, maybe one or two primes. Do you have an idea what percentage of camera company sales represents camera bodies and what percentage represents lenses? Um, off the top of my head, I don't. Um, yeah, we've looked at units shipped and that's one part of the story. Um, but value is the other part of the story and lenses make up a large amount of value for brands. That said, most sort of, I would say, hobbyists, you know, people who buy entry-level cameras with with interchangeable lenses, like Rebel Class, Canon Rebel Class cameras. Most of those people traditionally do not buy another lens. The uh, attachment rate is is zero or very close to zero. Where we come in, our demographic, you know, the enthusiasts and the hobbyists and the semi-professionals and the professionals, we buy the lenses. So the lenses are relatively high-profit items. But I don't know, in terms of total number of units shipped, if you look at units as a camera or a lens, how much of that is lenses? I'm afraid off the top of my yeah. head, I couldn't tell you. And, and the thing about lenses is that technologically they're very different. Um, there'll be newer lenses that are refined, that have slightly better optics, maybe a bit faster, maybe with better autofocus. But it's not like a difference of a 12 megapixel camera to a 24 megapixel camera. Um, it, that's, that, that used to be true. I would say that is changing actually, because now as we've seen lenses being created now in the past sort of three or four years, which are designed from scratch for mirrorless, that has allowed companies to make some very, very fundamental changes to how they, uh, how they design lenses. And it's, you know, if you look at the current generation of Canon, um, L series glass for the RF map, I mean, it's, they're absolutely extraordinary optics, um, lenses that would simply not have been physically possible on uh, the, the EF mount for DSLR. Same with Nikon. You know, Nikon Z mount F1.8 primes are absolutely extraordinary uh, in terms of performance wide open across the frame. They're beautiful lenses. They're under $1,000, and there's no way they could have made them for a DSLR because the flange back distance, the physical constraints, was so much more um, more restrictive. So we are seeing lenses now which genuinely do over-deliver on cost expectation compared to even five years ago. And Sony, because, I just mentioned Sony as well, because some of Sony's optical technologies right now are, are absolutely extraordinary. And that company has made a huge um, 
swing. You know, that Sony uh, lenses used to not be a strong point of Sony, and now they're making some of the best lenses in the world because they're making them from scratch for a mirrorless platform. And then, of course, we have the outlier, which is Leica, um, that makes incredibly expensive cameras that sell as luxury items that seem to be quite popular in China um, in the growing upper middle class. But no one knows how much money they make from their partnerships with with lenses with other companies, like what is it with Panasonic or is it Huawei phones that they work with as well? Um, But how does a company like that survive in this market where there's only so many dentists who need more Leicas, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, how Leica survives is a question that people have been asking for, you know, since before I was born. Um, Leica, Leica was meant to have gone out of business um, in the mid-60s and somehow didn't. You know, it, it, Leica is a, is a very interesting company. It is a luxury brand, and like all luxury brands, it doesn't exist because people need it. It exists because people want it, and they value that. They value that heritage. Um, cameras like the Q2, the SL2, and the um, the M10P cameras like that, which, which Leica is making now, undoubtedly with the you know with the assistance of some third parties, Panasonic being the obvious one. But they're so much more practical than any camera that Leica's made, in my opinion, for professional photographers since the 50s. You know so. They're really pulling all the stops out. You look at the SL2 and how similar it is to the Panasonic S1R. That's fair enough, but the SL2 can do things that the S1R can't do. It actually has an incredibly good 4K feature set. The S1R does as well, but the SL2 actually outspecs it. So Leica is not, you know, Leica knows that it has to be competitive. They're not resting on their laurels. And the way that Leica makes products means that they are expensive to produce. They cost as much as they cost for, um, you know, partly at least for that for that reason. Yeah, handmade cameras. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, certainly the lenses. You know, I've been to the, the Vetslar factory, and, and you you want a lens that's put together by hand, you know, by someone who's been doing it for fifty years, then buy from Leica. How do they survive in the wider camera market? I think the answer is, honestly, they're not competing for the same dollars. And they do make the camera that I lust after, the Leica M Monochrome, which really is sui generis. Um, I don't know why another company doesn't make a monochrome camera. I can tell you why they don't make another uh, a monochrome camera. Because there's not enough people who want to buy it, right? Pretty much, yeah. Because the um, the cost of interrupting the... Uh, the, the the assembly chain for a sensor of that kind for the sake of a tiny volume of, of products is is prohibitive. But don't you think that Fujifilm, with the kind of photographers that they target, that they could be the ones to do it? If anyone does it, it would be Fujifilm. But I've men- I've been speaking to Fujifilm about this for years and years, and it's just honestly, it's not something that up to now they felt comfortable taking the risk on economically. Yeah. But the other reason is, and and they're 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 right, is they say, well. We looked at it. We did a bunch of research. We looked at the likely size of the market. In the end, we worked, we we decided that doing a really good black and white film simulation preset was better. And I, you can't, yeah. it's hard to argue with that. No, it's true. Um, the the Leica M Monochrome has extraordinary detail, um, but this is something that you'll pay for if you really want that kind of detail. And like you said at the beginning, most people are just shooting for Instagram and they don't really care. Yeah, and you yeah. know, for for just the 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 um, economies of scale mean that let's say for example, Fujifilm made a monochrome X one hundred V, it would have to be more expensive than the conventional X one hundred, would yeah. inevitably appeal to a small number of people, 
which would mean that it would sell less, which would mean it would have to cost more just to make it worth doing, plus the extra cost of modifying that sensor. So you're looking at a camera that might even cost you know twice as much as the standard X100V, and you can't switch it back into color when you want to. Whereas with but the standard V, you can just switch it to black and white and back out again. Wouldn't people have made the same argument when the first X100 came out? It's a fixed lens camera and it was a small market, yet it's proven extremely popular. Yeah, but remember it was priced at $1,200, you know, whereas if you wanted to do a monochrome version of that camera, you'd, you'd, you'd potentially be, you'd be looking at doubling the price. So $1,200 yeah. is in that sort of sweet spot for um, enthusiasts and hobbyists and, yeah. and actually smartphone photographers too. It's aspirational enough to make it desirable but it's not completely out of reach and for a dslr or or a you know mirrorless camera user interchangeable mirrorless camera user it was inexpensive enough to take the risk as a second body okay where do you see all this going now in the next few years i was gonna say in the next few weeks next few months it seems well i guess this is a black swan event and no one knows what's going to happen after this um here in the uk they're saying to expect this to go on for six months so two to three months as it ramps up, two or three months as it ramps down, hopefully we get a vaccine in a year, we get some sort of treatment, um, testing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so for camera companies, when you think that most professional photographers don't have any work, right? Weddings, events, um, I guess the fashion industry is still doing some if they're careful, but professional photographers aren't going to be buying many cameras. Enthusiasts aren't going on vacations. Um but even if we didn't have this black swan event, what do you see as the trends in the coming years? Um, honestly, that's very, very difficult to say. I think the the really obvious um, you know answer is that I think we'll see computational photography becoming the norm in in what we currently would call traditional cameras, and that will be in the form of features that you know exist now which get better like face eye detection all that kind of stuff like you know animals human and it could also come in the form of features that you never even realize are actually there you know one of the things that the the iphone and and, and equivalent smartphones do so well is very rapid multi-frame capture which allows you to create you know very high dynamic range scenes very low noise scenes in very very low light and it happens sort of in almost invisibly. You don't realize it's happening. Now, I think we'll see that starting to get built into cameras. Now, whether that ends up being called night mode or whatever, or whether it just is, you know, a, a, an under the hood feature that is always operating that you don't realize, I don't know. But I think we'll definitely see computational photography becoming much more a part of traditional cameras. Um, I also suspect that um, we'll see some kind of a hybridization emerge between stills and video. It's hard to say what that will look like. I mean, it's been predicted for a while. It hasn't quite happened yet. But the merging of, of, of video capture with stills capture technologies in the way that, you know, you're looking at... So look at a camera like the Sigma FP, which doesn't have a mechanical shutter. And it's designed to be a video camera and a stills camera, right? So, you know, the Sigma definitely sees that as a model for the camera of the future, which will be all electronic global shutter and the the difference between stills and video capture will become very blurry. So do you mean like it's always shooting video and then you pick a frame in that video? Well, pot yeah, potentially. And it's hard to see what that will actually look like because video capture and stills capture for now are still so distinct. But mm. as they do start to merge, we might see start to see new product classes um, emerge as well. You know, Canon has, I think Canon surprised everybody with what looks like the adoption of genuine 8K in the in, in the in the upcoming EOS R5, 
an 8K video capture unlocks all kinds of other creative possibilities for stills photographers as well, because that's 30 megapixel files, you know, captured at a video frame rate of 24 or 30 frames per second. So there are things you can do with that as a stills photographer. Permanent burst mode. Yeah, you know, and, and pre, yeah. pre-capture is one that has been on phones for a while and Olympus is using to good effect in its high-end cameras as well, where the camera actually starts taking pictures before you've even pressed the button and allows you to pick the exact moment, even if you missed it. You know, that kind of thing. So I think the, the, the big blockers that I see right now on a major evolution of traditional cameras are um, battery technology, <laughs> to yeah. be perfectly honest. Um, yeah, essentially power management. You know, you, you look at the, the requirements of some of this technology in terms of power and, um, and, and heat and everything else. And those are hard obstacles to overcome. You know, we haven't had a new battery technology now really for quite a long time. Lithium ion is great compared to what came before, but you know we're we're not that that across the entire consumer electronics industry and the automotive industry as well. Battery technology seems to be the thing that really really needs to. Well, there's a lot of research into it because of electric cars, um, so it it's hopeful that we'll see some sort of improvement. But it's true that you've got a processor intensive task in a camera if you're doing burst mode or if you're doing video or some sort of permanent burst mode. Um, it's just going to be burning up the battery because I, I think my camera can get four. It was Jeff. Is it about four hundred still shots on a on a battery? Something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure. If you move that to video and 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 you're hitting on the processor more, um, that means you go out for a day out with your family and you don't have enough battery to take all the pictures you want. And that they can't just they just can't do that. In terms of other potential evolutions, I think what Canon is doing right now with its concept cameras is very interesting. Um, I think whether that works really will depend on on the market. You know, I think if if smartphone cameras continue to get better and better and better, as it seems you know sensible to assume that they will, then traditional camera manufacturers honestly may simply not be able to compete against that. And some of the people I've spoken to over the past couple of years will openly admit that. Like, we can't compete with smartphones because they're fundamentally different. So I think what we'll see is is manufacturers taking that a bit more to heart and not trying to play me too or trying to play catch up with Apple. They'll start differentiating, making products that Apple cannot and do not create. Exactly what that looks like, I don't know. But I think the... You know, applying computational technology t- uh, tricks, which smartphones do right now so well, applying that technology to cameras with a really big sensor in them could potentially unlock a whole new world of image quality. Now, what that looks like, I don't know. But, you know, it's easy to imagine pretty extraordinary leaps in low-light image quality, for example, if um, if some of the computational tricks in smartphones made their way into full-frame cameras. It's easy to imagine um, fairly extraordinary direct range capture and direct range video capture uh, using the same technology on larger sensor cameras. So I don't know exactly what it will look like, but I think for those people who are still interested in traditional cameras, I think there's no doubt that they will keep on getting better in the next few years. And I think they'll probably become more expensive because I think overall the market for them is, you know, will probably continue to, to shrink overall. But we are seeing some growth, you know, high-end interchangeable lens cameras and high-quality large sensor fixed lens compact cameras like Sony's RX100 series continue to sell very well, continue to grow. And every territory around the world is different. You know, Southeast Asia, they sell 
tons and tons of Rebel Series cameras over there and Fuji XA7s, that kind of thing. Whereas in the US and China, it's more medium to high end and, and Europe somewhere in the middle. So there'll always be markets, you'd hope, around the world where some, you know, where, which would grow or, or contract to um, into different speeds, different times. The challenge of COVID-19 is that it's a, it's, a, it's a sharp shock to the entire global economy, to the entire global c- consumer base. And how short that sharp shock uh, will be remains to be seen. Hopefully it is only six months or nine months and this will just be a blip. But it could accelerate a longer term trend. And if the economic damage that it does to the households in those big economies is, is long lasting, which it seems it might be, then I'm sure it will lead to an overall drop in consumer electronic sales across the board. And photography will be a part of that story inevitably. Okay, Barney Britton, Senior Editor of DP Review. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for you're the first human beings I've spoken to in several days. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jeff, time for our snapshots. What have you got? I am going to be very topical this week. Colby Brown is a photographer who does landscape photography. He guides photo workshops, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, turns out he was also in his early years, um, he did things having to do with uh, infection response. And that seems to be a very topical thing. And so he put together a blog posting on his website called A Photographer's Guide to Navigating the Pandemic. And it's all about COVID-19, but it has a very photographer focus. So a lot of the information is the, the basic COVID-19 information, wash your hands, you know, all, all of that advice, what it does, bringing together a lot of the general information. But then he's got uh, information on what photographers can do while they are isolated if they can't go out um, under lockdown or quarantine. Um, has sections on what will the economic impact be? What are some ideas about you know how to... Uh, you know, restructure your photo business. Um, It's something that he said he's going to keep adding to. And it just seems like a really good photographer focused resource for this new reality that we're all in. Kirk, what do you have this week? I've got another book. um, And I'm surprised that I didn't talk about this before. It came out maybe six months ago, uh, maybe even a year ago. It's by Alex Soth, S-O-T-H. It is called, I Know How Furiously Your Heart Is Beating. Ooh. How to describe this book? It's a very large book. These are photos that were shot on large format cameras, and they're mostly portraits. Um, they're sort of environmental portraits, the way you have a picture of a person in their surroundings. Um, they're obviously posed portraits, but they're not portraits in a studio. And what I found the most interesting as I was looking through this book is a, a lot of books of portraits are... Well, they're portraits, and they're technically interesting. But what comes out here is that I wanted to know more about the people in the portraits. And it's really hard to explain how he does that photographically. Um, What does he do to get that intimacy that it's beyond posing? And, And maybe this works that if you're spending a day with someone and taking lots of photos that eventually it gets to a point where you get the photo that doesn't look like it's posed in any way. Um, Not all the photos are portraits. Some are pictures of a window. Here's a picture of a piano. Um, Here's a picture, which is a portrait where the face of the subject, and I'm showing you 
this here, the face of the subject is out of focus, and what you see is his desk and bookcase behind him. Um, it's a fascinating book, and what's really interesting is Alex Soth was a relatively well-known, popular photographer, art photographer, um, exhibited in museums, and he took some time off to rethink his photography. He discovered meditation, and he's totally changed the way he approaches it. And, and there's an interview um, in the back of the book uh, with uh, an author named Hanya Yanagihara, and he explains that he tried to strip things down, and that he didn't used to like portraits, and he's resigned himself to understanding a new way of, of doing this. And you know, it's it's an 84-page book, so it's about 40 photos. Um, it's one of these small, concise photo books that just grabs you by the, 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 the extraordinary beauty of the images. Not the plastic beauty, everything's perfect, but that they feel real, that, that they feel like they're telling the truth. We'll put a link in the show notes to a video that he produced. It's about 10 minutes long where he's talking about um, how he discovered meditation, moved into an old house, um, and this big change in his life. I think you'll find it very interesting. All right, Kirk. Uh, be safe and have a great time shooting anything that's in your house. <laughs> <laughs> flowers. It's flower season. If only the weather would get better. It is flower season. Um, we've got tons of flowers that are blooming. So if we could just get some warm, sunny weather, I'll be out in the garden with my camera. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast. 